truth of the matter is, in all honesty, when a pastor has served the church and then God calls him somewhere else, he always leaves a piece of his heart at that place. So every once in a while, the pastor has to come back and reconnect with that missing piece. And so that's uh, kind of what I'm doing today, I guess. Actually, the last time, and Dan Wickman asked me when the last time was I preached, he was way off. But it was in November of 2009. That's right, Dan. And uh, at that time, I had just come off of a very tough church situation. I was literally, and this is not an exaggeration, I was literally testing the waters to try to determine whether or not I should continue in the pastoral ministry. And sometimes that happens in the course of a, of a pastor's life. He gets so low that he wonders if this is really what God wants him to continue to do. But not only did God confirm in my heart that Sunday that I should, in fact, keep on preaching, he has now led me to a church where I have learned new things. It's great to be able to learn new things in your 60s. And I have gained new vision. And I have preached with fresh power from the Holy Spirit and renewed my commitment to evangelism and discovered even new delight in worship, which I never really experienced before. God's very faithful. Have you noticed that? Now, when this church was formed, I, I know I'm supposed to do a little reflecting, a little uh, nostalgia, and I don't want to do a lot of it, but when this church was formed in 1966, obviously, the name Faith, Evangelical Free Church was chosen. And some years ago, I heard a definition of faith. It's not the only definition, or maybe even the best one, but it's a good one, and it, it was this, that faith is the willingness to risk a situation on God. The willingness to risk a situation on God. And when you think back to those original four families that began meeting in a living room somewhere with a vision for a strong Bible-teaching church in the Manitowoc area, that was a major step of faith. They were risking many things on God. In fact, the whole history of this church ever since has been a series of steps that represented risking situations on God, believing that he could be trusted to come through. And so I just wanted to take a minute to reflect on some of the steps of faith and ways that God came through in the time I was here, but I want to be very clear that I'm not suggesting that I'm the guy that should take the credit for everything that happened. Most of the time I felt like a spectator, just watching God do amazing things in response to the faith of, that the congregation placed in the Lord. When I came here in March of 1985, I was 33 years old. I'd been married nine years. I had two young boys and six whole years of pastoral experience under my belt. Orlando Krieger was the part-time associate pastor. Jerry Lindloff was our office person. The church had no computer, only one telephone line, and if someone was on the phone and you picked it up, you could hear him talking. You had to wait till they got off. I was actually talking to a suicidal person. And other people kept, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Are you done yet? Nope. And uh, very unnerving. Uh, there were no, of course, cell phones yet. But as God blessed the church with growth, there were a lot of opportunities to risk new situations on him. The building on Rapids Road, though only about seven or eight years old, was obviously becoming inadequate for our needs, and so we famously purchased the 25 acres of land out here where we are today. There was nothing out here. You have to understand that. There was nothing out here. 
And almost as soon as we bought it, things started to kind of pop up. Uh, Petrosky moved the big GM dealer out here. Uh, Walmart came out here. WGM Furniture, I think, was the first thing out here. And uh, you know the rest of the story as far as development. By faith, the church hired Church Growth Services out of South Bend, Indiana, and launched into a capital campaign and a bold venture to relocate. We worked with their representative, and I, I tell you this for a reason, we worked with a representative named Bill Walter. And ironically, just last year, the church I'm serving now hired Bill Walter to lead us into a capital campaign to finish a brand new sanctuary. And we will be occupying that sanctuary in December. This is now the third church that I've pastored that's been in a major building program. And with a senior pastor expected to take the lead in sacrificial giving, I'll never be able to retire. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. By faith, the church added a third staff member in 1988, risking that situation on God. By faith, we put the old building on the market, and God brought us a buyer. Have you ever tried to sell a used church? It's very difficult. And the Assembly of God Church came along and bought it, so we had to reinforce it for a Pentecostal church. But it all worked out. After occupying this new building here in 1991, by faith, we initiated the process of planting what ended up to be Hope Church. And we all know that God has blessed Hope Church over the years. We risked another situation on God. We believe that if we had a, a, an Easter service at the Capitol Civic Center. That might be good outreach, and God used those services beyond anything we ever could have imagined. Now, while all of this was going on, people were coming to faith in Jesus, experiencing changed lives, and becoming a vital part of the community of believers here. Some of those people who came to Jesus then are now in heaven, safely with the Lord. Now, you might wonder what means the most to me now as I look back over all the things that God did back then. And, of course, changed lives are always on the top of any pastor's list of things which he takes great joy in, in his ministry. But I want to mention one other amazing phenomenon, and I imagine maybe this has been talked about uh, in the past. But the remarkable number of children and teens who were part of Faith Church back during that time period, who have gone on to serve the Lord in full-time ministry, whether with parachurch groups like Campus Crusade or the Navigators, uh, others have taken youth pastoral positions, associate pastoral positions, lead pastoral positions, some are missionaries, some are serving in Christian schools, and I haven't taken time to count up the list lately, but I know it's a significant number. And that's not even counting those who have gone on to become outstanding Christian lay people in their church, making an impact for Jesus in their places of business. When you start risking situations on God, you never know what God might do. Now today I want to issue a couple of challenges, as the sermon title indicates. Uh, challenges for the present time. And I have one challenge for each of two distinct groups of people that I believe are represented here in the congregation. Now obviously the first group is composed of the majority of you. You know and you follow Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've made peace with God through faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit 
lives in you. You have been forgiven of all your sins. You've a, you have a place reserved for you in heaven for all eternity. And you know that if you died today, you would immediately go into the presence of the Lord. You have eternal life. You have the assurance of everlasting life. You are a true, authentic Christian. No doubt about it. I have a challenge for you. So I want to consider that challenge first before we identify and challenge the second group. And here's the challenge to every believer. To be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. To be an ambassador for Christ. That brings us to the passage 2 Corinthians 5. And I want to read verses 17 through 20. This is in the NIV. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, obviously, the big idea in those verses is this, that Every believer in Jesus is to be an ambassador. And I'm going to assume that we all have at least some kind of a working knowledge of what an ambassador is, generally speaking. An ambassador is that person who represents one nation and the nation's interests while living in another nation. He or she lives in a foreign land to have a maximum impact for the country they represent. For example, the United States ambassador to China lives in China, but he or she is an American, and they represent the interests of the U.S. government to the Chinese government. And so it is for the U.S. ambassador to any other country. Now, in the case of the believer, we are representatives of our home country, which is heaven. And we live in this foreign, oftentimes hostile country that we call the world. And while we're here in the world, we are to be representing the interests of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We're to be living testimonies of his ability to save and to transform sinners and turn them into saints. In other words, we are to make him known in everything we do and wherever we are. In fact, you notice, and some of you have uh, probably memorized 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul begins by pointing out, that we have become new, new creatures in Christ. And then he quickly clarifies that as a result of that great privilege, we've been given a great responsibility, which he calls the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people back into a relationship with God. And so we've been made new creatures in Christ, given the ministry of reconciliation, so that we might, as Christ's ambassadors, be involved in bringing people into a right relationship with God. That's the great mission. That's the great priority of heaven. And as ambassadors, we're to be all about seeing people reconciled to God. I like to express it this way. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and Christ is in us for the same reason, to reconcile people to God. Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles were very uniquely gifted ambassadors. They were on the job full time. And we also know that the Holy Spirit continues to gift and to call people into various 
full-time ministries. Ephesians 4, for example, talks about some being apostles, others prophets, others pastors and teachers, evangelists. It's a little easier, maybe, isn't it, to picture in our minds those types of people being ambassadors and making Christ known. But the truth is that all of us in Christ are equally called, even if we're not similarly gifted. Or you might say, every one of us is to be a link in that chain that God uses to bring people to faith in Jesus. There's no task that's too menial. It's not a role that's reserved just for pastors and missionaries and Bible teachers and small group leaders. We are all ambassadors entrusted with the ministry of reconciling people to God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, I don't have what it takes to be an effective ambassador for Jesus. I'm too much of an introvert. I've never been much of a people person. I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm not very persuasive. I'm too new in the faith. I'm too easily intimidated. I'm afraid of rejection. Are you through? What I want to do is demonstrate how you or anyone in this building today and even some who are unable to be here physically can be instruments in the hand of God to bring people to Jesus, to be his ambassadors. To start with, we should be aware that there is a process involved whereby people come to Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? It's a process. People don't just walk in off the street, boom, they accept Christ immediately. There are some exceptions. That's not usually the way it goes. I can tell a story. I, I, I wasn't going to, but just very briefly, I remember being on this platform on a Sunday morning, giving an invitation to accept Christ. There was a young mother back there holding a crying baby, first time she'd ever been to Faith Church. And the invitation was given. She came forward, accepted Christ as her Savior, and became part of the church for some time. I later received a letter from her years later telling me the whole background story about what led up to her coming into this church in the first place. It's quite an amazing testimony. But there is a process. And I want to show you where the process begins. You know where it starts? Prayer. Prayer. Who here cannot pray? Who here cannot pray for the lost? Spir uh, salvation is a spiritual transaction between the Holy Spirit and the unbelieving person. And so because it's a spiritual transaction, God has to take the initiative because a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, as the Bible says we all are apart from Christ, is not able to take the initiative. And the biblically prescribed means whereby we move the heart and the hand of God is prayer. And the great thing about prayer, you can be just as bold as you want to before God, you can pray as often as you want to, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. There's no pushback. There's no rejection. There's no fear of ridicule. When I was serving in my first church, my first little town in Minnesota, there was a young man there that I was in association with because of a committee we were on, and he was part of a very strange, new age kind of a cult. And one time I was conversing with him, I said, you know, Dave, sometimes I think God brought me here to this town to see you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm praying for you. 
that God would open your heart. And he was taken back. He said, don't you think you ought to ask my permission first? I was like, no. I'll be praying for you, buddy. Nothing he could do about it. And you can be just as bold as you want to be. A few years ago, uh, the congregation I'm serving now was challenged by our superintendent to keep a running list, each person, a running list of those that we wanted to see come to Christ and to commit to praying for them regularly. And he handed out these little bookmarks with line, seven lines, and he called it Seven for Heaven. I said, I can do that. And I wrote down seven names real quickly. And then the list expanded, and pretty soon I had two lists. And then I had three. Now I have nine lists of people, including two lists that are exclusively made up of husbands that need to know Christ. I call it the husbands, group one, and the husbands, group two. I don't know if you have that problem in Wisconsin, but where I am, there's a lot of husbands that are AO, what is it, MIA, missing in action, AWOL, absent without, they're just not there. And the wives are beside themselves. What do you do? You start praying for them. If you want to get into the game of seeing people come to Christ, get your list going and start praying. The second step in the process is care. And what is caring? It's just looking out for opportunities to show tangible love and kindness to those you're praying for. Caring is being that neighbor that's always there to serve other neighbors, offering to pray for them, inviting them over, putting out the garbage when they're on vacation, being alert to possible crisis points in a family's life where you can be available to help ease their burden, sending a sympathy card, attending the wake or the funeral when they lose a loved one. And you know what will happen eventually? The question is going to come up. Tell me about your church. What time are your services? I'd like to check it out. What they're really saying is, if that, if that church has more people like you, I'd like to meet them. There was another occasion in that town where I served. Should I tell you the name of it? Dan, you know the name of that town, the first town. Pelican Rapids, Minnesota. And uh, we had some neighbors across the street. The family was in crisis. Their son, a teenager, had gotten in some trouble with the law. They were beside themselves. Mom was a nominal member of a local church, mainline church. Dad never went to church. And so Karen and I spent some time with them, listening to their heartache, letting them unburden themselves. Later on, they visited the church. They became regular attenders. I remember the Sunday that Dad gave his heart to Jesus. And 35 years later, they're both solid members of that church, serving the Lord. Look for opportunities to care in such a way to make people curious about Jesus. And then thirdly, invite Invite. When's the last time that you specifically invited someone to church? Did you know that the most common reason someone attends a church is because someone invited them? Did you also know, and I heard this recently, that 25% of all people you invite will attend after the first invitation? Often they're more likely to attend when you're inviting them to a special service such as Easter Sunday. That's the classic or even a new sermon series that might be of special interest to them. Of course, it helps if the sermon series are interesting. That's my job, that's Pastor Jeremy's job. About four years ago, I was beginning a new sermon series on marriage, and one of our couples had a son and daughter-in-law, married couple, who were completely unchurched, 
Their marriage was on the very brink of divorce, and the parents invited them to the series. A high school friend from our church also invited them to the series. Another guy invited them to the series. So they felt like somebody was trying to tell them something, so they came. And they later came to faith in Jesus. They were baptized not long ago and joined the church, and they're serving in ministry. Don't forget the power of the invitation. It might not necessarily be to a service. It might be to an activity like the men's breakfast. I'm happy to hear that they had bacon there. That's going to attract a certain element of people. Uh, maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe it's a, another kind of a one-time event. But inviting. And then, finally, when you've prayed and you've cared and you've invited and they come, here's the missing link sometimes, welcome. Welcome them. Sometimes we drop the ball on this one. Church might have a great welcome center, great greeters, a very good system for following up on visitors. But what I'm talking about is the responsibility that each one of us has, especially on Sunday mornings or whatever the event is, where a visitor is attending, to act in such a way toward them that they feel you're actually glad they came. We should all be a little bit more like secret service agents when we're at church, at least for part of the time. I'm saying the whole time. We've probably all observed the secret service agents who guard the president, the president's, uh, presidential candidates. Uh, Paul Tittle, uh, did you see any secret service agents? Paul was at a convention. I don't know if it was Democrat or Republican. Doesn't really matter. He was somewhere. Those Secret Service agents, you know, they're looking around all the time. Now, they don't look very welcoming, I, I'll admit that. We want to go to the next level. We want to be on our toes, and we want to look welcoming. Because you never know when someone is deciding whether or not they're going to come back to Faith Church. I've heard that people decide in the first five minutes whether or not they'll come back to a church. Now, I know it's great to see friends and get caught up on things. We all know that's the horizontal fellowship we look forward to, right? Now, my wife and I had a free Sunday one time when we were in Illinois. So we visited a nearby free church, a larger church. And as we walked in the door, I saw a woman who was obviously a greeter. She had some sort of identification badge on. So, you know, we braced ourselves for the inevitable welcome. <laughs> but as we walked toward her, she saw somebody that she obviously knew who had been out of town or something. We're walking towards, she goes, hey, stranger, what did you get back in town? Great to see you. And we just slithered in, unwelcomed. We didn't feel very valued. Well, all you have to do, now, again, you might not be a people person. You might be sort of uh, withdrawn. All you have to do, you see somebody you don't recognize. You don't have to say, you must be new, because you know that can go very badly. I, are, are you new? Just, no, I'm Pastor Pat. <laughs> See, Then you look bad. All you have to do is say, good morning. My name is, I'm so glad you're here today. That's all you have to do. Now, you, we know that sometimes visitors like to be a little bit anonymous. We understand that, but they don't want to be ignored. So the worst thing you can do is totally ignore a visitor. If you see somebody, at least smile at them. Say you're glad to see them. Now, obviously, all of these steps are preliminary 
to making an actual appeal to someone to accept Jesus and be reconciled to God. And God will not necessarily use every one of us on a regular basis to bring a person to a decision for Christ. But the, the appeal has to be made at some time if the person is going to come to Christ. People have to hear the gospel because they're not going to just observe your life and guess how to get into heaven. Somebody has to tell them. It's right in the Bible, Romans 10, 14. How then shall they call upon the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And I'm not talking about being preachy, just proclaiming, announcing. And in our passage this morning, Paul reminds all ambassadors, remember, that God is making his appeal through us. And again, I realize some are better at this than others. And maybe your role will never be beyond the, the prayer or the care or the welcome or the invitation. And the one who makes the appeal can't always be the pastor, right? But sometimes it has to be. And today, in order to just kind of model a little bit about what an appeal looks like and to fulfill my responsibility as the preacher of the day, I'm going to urge anyone here today who has not definitely received Jesus Christ to do so. We move on now, of course, to the second group. Because every growing, healthy, thriving church has an element of people who, in some cases, have attended for some time, but they've not yet really been reconciled to God. I believe that there may be some of you here today who are in that group. You enjoy the church environment, yes. You've met some very nice people. You came to investigate church, to investigate Jesus, and you decided to stay. But is it possible that you've not yet fully grasped what it is that God has offered you and what it is that he's asking of you? And so I feel compelled in this just few minutes that we have left, you'll be happy to know that this point is not nearly as long as the first one, to issue that challenge so that no one would leave here concluding that just because they like church and attend regularly, they must automatically be in a right relationship with God. So here's the challenge to what we'll call the seeker. Here's the challenge to every seeker. Be reconciled to God. Verse 20, remember, we implore you, Paul says, on Christ's behalf. We're begging you, be reconciled to God. Now that may raise a few questions. For example, what is reconciliation? Why do I need to be reconciled? Well, okay, let's start there. The Bible, of course, very clear. All of us are born in a state of separation from God. There are no exceptions to that. The cause of the separation is sin. Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Therefore, because God is holy, we are not. There is distance, eternal distance, separating us from him. And for that reason, the majority of people in the world are not in a relationship with God, and the effects of this alienation are everywhere. We see these horrible events that are taking place on the news, and what do people sometimes ask when they see what's going on? They say, what is wrong with this world? Well, here's the answer. It's a sinful world. It's separated from God. And the great tragedy of this separation is that unless it is remedied, it remains for all eternity. And so the solution is, to be brought back into relationship with God, to be reconciled so that we can be with him for eternity. That leads to another question. 
how is it possible to reconcile a sinful person to a holy God? I mean, marriage counselors find it's almost impossible to reconcile a husband and wife who are locked in conflict and headed for divorce, and that's just two human beings. How about a human being and a holy God? We have our answer in verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. When we come to Jesus Christ, God no longer counts your sins against you. In other words, he completely and forever forgives us of every sin. What a bargain is that? I know, it leads to another question. How can a holy God just not count a person's sin against them? If he just sweeps them under the rug and says, hey, it's okay, I know you meant well, you know. That would be inconsistent with the character of a holy God. Verse 21 solves the problem. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God took your sin and he took my sin and he laid it on Jesus. God literally declared that he was sin when he was on the cross. And because Jesus was God in the flesh, he was able to make payment in full for all of our sins. So that when you and I receive Jesus Christ, by faith, God says, you are now righteous. How righteous? Righteous enough for heaven. Do you realize what that means? That means that we, in Jesus, are given the gift of a forgiven past. How cool is that? Have you ever thought what it would be like to never have to worry about answering to God for any of your past? And that's exactly what happens when you give your life to Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Once you have been declared righteous and forgiven, no accusation brought against you before God will ever stand. It's like every believer in Jesus is, is a criminal standing before the judge of the universe in his court of law. And the judge looks at the believer, and then he looks out over the crowded courtroom, and he announces... The defendant's sin has been paid for. The defense attorney, Jesus Christ, has presented the case on his behalf. I, therefore, pronounce them to be not guilty. And in addition, I pronounce them righteous before me. Then the judge slams down his gavel and asks the crowd, now would anyone like to make an accusation or present a basis for overturning my decision? And there's silence. And God says, I didn't think so. The defendant is free to go. Is this sounding good yet? There's just one other thing. Once we've been reconciled to God, declared to be righteous, forgiven of our past, something else happens. A transformed life. You become a brand new person, changed from the inside out. Remember how the passage started. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. That is at the very heart of the Christian message, that God has come to to us in Jesus to give us a brand new start, a completely new way of living. This church, Faith Church, is filled with transformed people. It would be a huge mistake for anyone to think for even a moment that the people you see around you who make up this congregation were always these joyful, uh, godly leaders and members of the church. 
There are a lot of stories here represented by people who were once drunkards, once immoral, once maybe even spent a little time in jail, were addicted to prescription drugs and other substances. They were unkind, they were unfaithful to their spouse, they were unholy. What happened? They heard the appeal. Be reconciled to God. And they responded in faith, and as Jesus once described it, they were born again, which means they started life all over again. Wouldn't you love to be able to start life all over again? and avoid some of the tragic mistakes that you've made in your life. Now, you can't do that physically, but you can do it spiritually. Jesus is all about fresh starts and new beginnings. In Jesus, God will forgive all of our sins because he's already laid them on Jesus. The result of being forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God is that we become transformed people, brand new creatures in Christ. And so I want to appeal to that second group to make today the day you get off the fence, quit thinking about it, contemplating it, uh, investigating. The time for investigations has passed, the time for decision has come. So I want you to bow your heads with me as we prepare to close the service. As you're thinking about this message, thinking about your own relationship with God, I want to invite any of you who sense that you're still kind of on the fence, still haven't come over to Jesus' side completely, to pray a prayer that's, that's kind of like this. God, I know I've sinned. I've, I've, I'm not deserving of heaven, but I believe Jesus died for me. He rose again from the dead. And he will offer me a new life if I accept him, and he'll forgive me. Now, I want to pray that prayer, and I want to ask you to silently, in your own heart, Pray that prayer along with me. Nobody's going to ask you to do anything publicly or outwardly. This is a transaction between you and God brought to you by the Holy Spirit. You want to pray that prayer? Just pray this after me. God, I know that I've sinned. I don't deserve to go to heaven. But I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he will forgive me. And I believe that he rose from the dead. I now receive him into my heart and life. Help me to follow you from now on. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I wouldn't ask anybody to respond publicly or outwardly, but I would encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, made that decision, you might want to indicate that on your connection card. Uh, give it to one of the pastors or one of the elders, one of those men that were up front here. Uh, I think you know who the pastors are. Give it to me if you want to. Tell somebody. It's very important. Let people know that you've decided for Jesus and begin your new life with him. Let me just give one more prayer of benediction as we're dismissed. Father, we thank you that you have moved in our hearts today. You have challenged all of your people to consider their role as ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this world. And you have spoken to the hearts of, I believe, some, a mom or a dad, a grandpa, a child, teenager, that they need to make their decision for Jesus Christ today and be reconciled to you. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.